This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Adam, don't say another word. People probably can hear that you're on the phone. People can also probably hear that you sound like you're dying. So I'm going to do the introductions uh, this week. We are super excited. We have Andrew Ramlow and Ryan Berlin from Rennie. Andrew Ramlow is the VP of Advisory Services over there. Ryan Berlin is the Director of Intelligence and the Senior Economist. Past guests... Fan favorites, though they have not been on the show since 2019. So it was so great having these guys back uh, in Kokomo Studios earlier this week. Yeah, I, I loved having Andrew and Ryan in, in the studio. And I, I should say, every time we get a chance to talk to uh, the guys from Rennie, there's always huge, huge takeaways about the market, demographics, you know, immigration, every everything really, and and it's kind of uh, you know we're today we're we're talking we're really in the details, and then we're uh, looking at uh, kind of the macro picture as well. So it's it's just an overall fantastic conversation. Yeah, I should also say that we made a joke in this episode that we were one of us was sick in the room. I think we I said two were nobody, sick in the room. Yeah, nobody was actually sick at that time. So, uh, but it is funny that I'm now like. Deathly ill. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel great. Uh, and um, yeah, it was it was a great conversation. You were in tip top shape during the conversation. And just to highlight, just to emphasize, I should say, yeah, these guys are literally monitoring, like they have data trackers where they're monitoring the market day by day. So it's big picture, demographic, wealth transfer, immigration. And then it's like minutia of what happened last Tuesday. So it's like uh, zooming in, zooming out. Such a great conversation. And not to mention the backdrop of these ongoing banking crises, not so much in Canada at this point, but in the Silicon Valley bank uh, collapse, the signature bank collapse in, in the US, uh, the Credit Suisse issues in Europe and, and what that all means. We do touch on that a bit. It's a timely conversation. But, you know, knowing you were sick and thinking about these ongoing issues and what this means for the global economy and more importantly for us here, the Canadian economy and the, and the economy locally, I did want to touch base with somebody about uh, how this impacts what the Bank of Canada will do and what that means for interest rates, both fixed and variable here. So, Adam, what I did was I, I called, you know, uh, an ace mortgage broker, if you will, uh, and Pascas fan favorite, Ray Macklem, to talk yeah. about what these issues globally mean for interest rates and mortgage rates here locally. So maybe we'll cut to uh, a five minute with Ray Macklem. Everyone should tune into this one. This one is fantastic. Okay, so I'm here with our roving correspondent, Ray Macklem from Nest Mortgage. How you doing, Ray? 
I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? Good, good. Past guest fan favorite. It's been a while, Ray. Glad that you had the a moment here to speak with us because there's been some fairly dramatic changes to the lending landscape in the last few days, and we wanted to to get your hot take. Yeah, definitely some some very dramatic changes. Uh, you know, the the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank has really changed the market outlook for interest rates and what central banks will do going forward. So. What has been a uh, a pretty dramatic roller coaster carries on its 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 crazy ride here. So, yeah, with 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 the collapse, it has sent markets into a prediction that we're likely to see rate cuts, a couple by the the Bank of Canada by July and possibly a third before the end of the year. And with the U.S. Fed, it has experts guessing as to whether they'll they'll leave rates steady or or go a quarter of a point. But Whatever the case, the expectation is that they're they're not going to go nearly as far as as what uh, Jerome Powell predicted last week, which was on a, a pretty aggressive uh, stint of further rate hikes. There, so so Ray, just so I understand uh, and our listeners understand, I feel like last week we were talking about the Bank of Canada. You know, it was paused, but are they going to continue to pause? They might be raising rates again. This. Silicon Valley Bank situation and uh, the bank on the East Coast. Um, uh, signature. That went, yeah, Signature that I believe went into receivership as well has really changed things. Yeah, yeah, it really has. I think, I think part of what's happened here is these banks going under is probably exposing some of the effects of these interest rate increases that, that maybe weren't being focused on, right? The central banks have been almost singularly focused on inflation and raising interest rates, but there is some collateral damage, and I think some of that's being shown right here. So it it is it is changing the narrative a little bit. And you know, we went from starting the year with with the expectations that we'd see a potential drop by the end of the year with the Bank of Canada to February, predicting you know at least one more increase by July, and 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 now it's it's gone completely the other direction. So I, I think it's given real pause to central bankers to to reevaluate the extent of, of these rate increases and just how much their impact is being felt across the board. Well, I, it makes me think, how how many times can you raise uh, the overnight lending rate before you break things? And it looks like things are starting to break. <laughs> I, I think we may have our answer. <laughs> so, Ray, as a final question here, fixed mortgage rates and variable rates rely on different markets and influences what does this mean for fixed rates? What does this mean for variable rates? And as a third question, and this might be another 20 minutes, how do you navigate this current uh, market if you're a potential uh, buyer? Yeah. So so the short answer on fixed rates, I think you can expect some downward pressure. We're already seeing that. Uh, we, we've had some some rate drops with with current clients and fairly sizable ones as well, up to half a percentage point on, on shorter term fixed rates, uh, in particular three-year terms. Variable rates, I think you can expect. Well, I mean, what the markets are expecting now is, is is drop. So, where I think the mere mention of variable rates gives people PTSD, given the last year, <laughs> um, that's that's coming back into the conversation. And and I, and I do have borrowers that are being a little bit more brave and considering that as an option and, and riding riding that wave down, as now the expectations are are perhaps for that to happen a little bit more quickly. So, as as far as the discussion between the two, you know, we've done some analysis with comparing shorter term, in particular, three years against variable rates, you know, against the market pricing. And, and variable rates have typically coming out ahead. So a little bit more flexibility there with the variable. So it, it, is, it is a decision that's, you know, up to the individual borrower and their tolerance for risk. But I, I do think that, that, a, that an argument can certainly be made for the variable rates, especially if the market pricing sees it coming down a little bit quicker than, 
than what it was, say, you know, three or four days ago. Right. I feel like there's two two takeaways here, right? Like the three quarters of a percentage point by the end of the year makes variables sound very attractive. But uh, three days ago, it was up a quarter point by July. So the uncertainty there is something that everybody has to consider because, you know, you got to be able to sleep at night. But yeah, the 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 risk, you know, the reward may outweigh the risk at this point. Yeah, I would think that's a fair assessment. I mean, we, we live in an age where where news and media is just information is so accessible and you have competing interests vying for our eyes and clicks, you know, through the form of sensationalized headlines and perhaps a little bit of uh, hyperbole. And I, that tends to lend itself well to, to overreactions, right? We react very strongly because most of us just aren't equipped to handle the information that's thrown. We don't have the background or, or knowledge or don't consider the other factors. So I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, as is usually the case. So taking a more balanced approach and, and, and knowing that, hey, what's happening today is very likely to change and, and, and just looking at you know, sort of the middle ground of this and seeing what's, what's the likelihood here. Fantastic, Ray. How can people uh, who want to avoid the headlines and the hyperbole and get the get the real deal get in touch? Yeah, you can find me uh, Instagram as Ray at Nest Mortgage. Email me same thing, Ray at nestmortgage.co. That's not .com, but .co. Uh, but happy to connect with with anybody that has questions and and, and take that balanced approach. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Ray. And uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, next time a bank collapses, but hopefully before. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate the time. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Andrew Ramlow, VP of Advisory Services, and Ryan Berlin, Director of Intelligence and Senior Economist at Rennie. How are you both doing? Well. Yeah. <laughs> doing well. I'm just generally fatigued. <laughs> it's been busy. Yeah, Go right. on. You're fatigued? Well, you know, two kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, full days. Nice. You know, so Sounds like Adam. How, how old are your kids? They're eight and ten. Eight and ten. Okay, you're ahead of me, but... Uh, I've I've got a, a one year old and a four year old. Oh, you're in deep. Yeah, I'm yeah, in I'm yeah, in deep right yeah, now. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I have an eleven year old, so I'm like smooth, oh, smooth yeah. sailing. I'm, it's a good age. Uh, it's a yeah. But just wait till you hit fourteen. 15. You know what? She's actually it's a it's a it's a girl, and I feel like the um yeah, she's almost there. Like every day, I'm like she's either like kittens, like she's. <laughs> 
I'm like, what are you, six? <laughs> and in the next minute, I'm like, what are you, 22? Yeah, like, there's yes, no, the yes. swings are crazy, but. Well, welcome back to the Complaining Dads podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time today. I, I'm trying to remember the last time you were on was just before COVID, I think, around 29, late 2019, yep. if mm. I remember, uh, which was a totally different world. It was almost boring. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and now and now we're super happy to have you back. It's been in the making for a bit here. Can we start maybe with Andrew? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I, uh, I've got a background in urban economic geography and a master's in planning. And uh, I've been dabbling in real estate for the last 20 years. But uh, in terms of my role at Rennie in, uh, on the advisory services side, we work for the municipalities as well. Um, we work for a lot of developers, but then also uh, I work for some of the ministries, um, uh, Ministry of Housing, and then up to the federal level as well. So uh, a little bit of a, you know, wide and diverse runway in terms of who we uh, serve, but then also the range of issues that we uh, that we look at. It's it's broader than just real estate. So just so I understand your services at Rennie, so you're you're providing intelligence for the development community, for the general population with your podcasts, your reports, but then you're also consulting for government municipalities. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. So when years ago, like Ryan and I have been working together for probably about the last 20 years now, and we used to run a consulting firm called Urban Futures before we moved over to Rennie about eight years ago now. And uh, when we moved over, we established the intelligence team at Rennie. Ryan, you guys have grown into how many folks now in intelligence? Yeah, we're six people. Yeah, six. And then about just, just after COVID started, we decided to uh, hive off advisory services. And so I moved over and uh, run advisory services and rise to candles uh, the the intelligence team. Nice. Well, that's a good segue to uh, Ryan. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role? Well, yeah. So as Andy said, yeah, we've been we've been working together for a couple of decades now, which is crazy, crazy. to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I head up our, our Intel function, as Andy said, and uh, so we've got a, a team with a diverse skill sets uh, data analysts and sort of quasi data scientists and uh, and then market analysts as well. And we just every day we're just looking to um, procure and synthesize data um, and develop it into a foundation of insights for whoever the audience is, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it is developers or we have we have a brokerage, we have two hundred and fifty uh, realtors that, that work at Rennie, so to help them understand how the market's changing. Um, and then government, uh, and then, yeah, information that we just put out there for public consumption as well. Right. So it, that's, uh, speaking of segues to the next question, how's the market? <laughs> it's such a good question, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like you can, you can ask, it's so easy to ask a little tougher to answer. I'll, I'll just say that every point in the market is unique, right? It always is. So to say right now it's unique. Yeah, it's always unique, but I think what makes this this one particularly interesting this this particular downturn and cycle that we're in is that really it really everything is about inflation. It's like one thing. We have such a dynamic and complex market, but really what's messing everything up is the high rate of inflation. So we we care about inflation of course within the context of the housing market because it has an impact on interest rates and then interest rates in turn impact the housing market issues of affordability whether you're a buyer or an existing owner 
and it impacts the the number of transactions that are occurring, right? On both the buys, you've got buyers right now who are really not able to afford what they want to be able to purchase. And then you have sell, so they're not buying many of them. And then you have sellers who are sort of looking at what their home value was 10 months ago and saying, if I can't get that for my home, I'm not selling. Because many of them at this point don't have to. Right. Right. So we just have like a very sticky market. It's like a, it's a it's a game of chicken almost between <laughs> buyers and sellers. And we're just not seeing a lot of movement at this point. So I'd also add the broader implications there in terms of things like construction uh, and additions to the housing stock. Uh, inflation and interest rates have had a really, really big impact on that. And we're seeing a lot of developers push pause a lot, especially on the rental side of things mm-hmm. as the pro formas just aren't making sense anymore. And we've also seen some pretty significant uh, push up in rents as well. So, but not to the degree that it's going to offset what uh, the new lending rates are. Right. So it sounds like basically what you're describing is things are kind of in a slow moving grind to a halt <laughs> or ne- or or real slowdown. Are, yeah, are we seeing... I, I wouldn't say halt. I'd say a, a, a grind down, but yeah. you also have to look at that in context. What have we we've been used to? Question has to be asked, well, what is a normal market? Then? Right. And so, yes, it's grinding slower driven by interest rates, but I wouldn't say it's grinding to a halt. Right. One, one point to add to that is that we are, when we look at the resale market, we're in a once in a decade slowdown in sales. So it is, it's been prolonged Like we've had. So when we look at Metro Vancouver as a whole, we've been sub 3000 transactions a month for eight months. We just, we haven't seen that for over 10 years. I, I think everybody's just waiting for that other shoe to drop. Like we, nobody, the, the uncertainty is paralyzing it, whether you're an individual buyer or seller, or you're a business looking to, you know, contemplating investments in people or infrastructure or technology anybody who's looking to part with a big amount of money is kind of holding back because there's still, you know, we're sensing now that maybe this, this rate hike cycle on the part of the bank of Canada is coming to an end. I mean, we think, mm-hmm. but we don't know for certain. It seems like bond yields, even though over the past 10 years, it kind of been like the five year and 10 year yields moving in sync with each other, up, down, up, down, up, down, but all around 3%. So there's a little more stability in a sense there. They're not just sort of there's not this unabated rise in those yields and inflation starting to come down. We'll talk, I'm sure, a lot more about that. that. But I think there's some there's some green shoots, to use a term I don't love, but I think it's appropriate that that I that we're starting to see a bit of an evolution in the macroeconomic context that is maybe sort of enticing some people back in, but we're not by no means are we back to sort of that, you know, that 2019 market. Right. And and just thinking about where we're at, because it's it's March 14th, so we're start moving into the spring market. We're talking, so a few things, game of chicken, other shoe to drop, green shoots. <laughs> where, where, maybe even just in the, in the last couple of weeks here, mm-hmm. like, are we seeing inventory is definitely increasing a little bit, although it's really low. Uh, I'm just wondering is, how do you see the spring playing out? So I will say, so I mean, we, we track the market on a on a daily basis. So we're tallying sales, new listings, tracking inventory. Inventory is remarkably flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, typically between Jan one and the end of March, so that first quarter, we see inventory rise by thirty percent, and it's up by a third of that. Wow! So inventory, even two weeks into March, we haven't seen much movement from the beginning of this month 
And typically, as you said, you know, this is the most, yeah. the, we're, we're entering the most active period of the year and we're not seeing that increase in inventory despite the low sales counts because new listings are down 60% versus last year. Not to get too sort of behind the scenes here and technical, but when we look at our, our dashboard and map out the daily new listings from last year, and then we overlay the daily new listings this year, it's, it's night and day. Like, so back to this point of people aren't listing their home if they don't have to, we, we do still have a strong labor market, right? People have a lot of savings. People who want to be working for the most part are working and earning an income. And despite rising interest costs for some homeowners, the majority are still able to afford their homes. So we're not seeing those distressed listings right now. So my prediction is on the inventory front that we will see more listings going forward, especially with these higher interest rates. Sales are tracking. This is the one thing. Sales are tracking at about a month end of 3,600. So that'll break that streak of sub 3,000 that we've seen. Do you, do you see more inventory coming on with people that have higher mortgage rates triggering it? Or is it a case of we need some good news for more inventory to come on? I don't think the good news alone will do it because unless the good news translates to a greater price appetite on the part of buyers, then I don't think sellers are going to that 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 will be the thing that gets them to put their home on the market. But I, yeah, I do think that we need to watch the variable rate mortgage market is in rough shape. So CIBC just published their their, their latest uh, earnings report. I think it was $52 billion out of $72 billion of variable rate mortgages. That book were um, interest-only payments with negatively amortizing loans. So that, you know, that is, that's a rough situation to be in because you know when those homeowners renew all of that. So they're paying only interest, fixed payments, and that extra increment that they're not paying of interest is going back into principal and they're snapping back to their original amortization period when Mm -hmm. they renew. So their payments are going to go through the roof and they haven't been paying down their balance. So in some ways, you know, that is going to impact some homeowners. So I think we are going to see some listings that come through where maybe even the seller's not as price sensitive as they'd otherwise be because the primary goal is really to get out from underneath that mortgage. So I think we'll see a little bit of that. I don't know if it will define the market though. And do you think that had inventory crept up to typical levels, do you think we would have seen prices fall off? Um, Yeah, that's an interesting one because on the one hand, you might say, well, listen, for the given amount of demand that's out there, more supply might've meant lower prices. But I think one of the things that is defining the sticky market is a lack of options for buyers. So I do think that there's quite a bit of pent-up demand. We know that most recently, more than a third of all listings uh, have been on the market for 60 days. Last year, it was half of that. Right. So there's almost like, there's, I mean, in talking to our agents, you guys would know too. I mean, it seems like there's a profile of home. It doesn't matter if it's a condo or a house or whatever, but if it's livable, if it's, you know, if, <laughs> if it's reasonably priced, it's going to sell. But then there's like a big schwack of existing inventory right now that's just not moving. And it could be that the sellers are saying, hey, whatever it was worth back in May, that's the only price that I'm accepting. And I'll just let it sit here until the market comes back to me. But really, there's actually less inventory than there actually appears to be. And so I think buyers are just kind of like, I don't have options. So, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be interesting to see if we get this, this game of chicken situation again. You get a bit more inventory, a bit more options for the buyers. They come out of the woodwork. And we could see prices start to rebound. We also have to look and recognize that there's been some implications of that situation and low inventory on the rental market, right? Population in the region is still growing. 
population of the province is still growing. People still need to live somewhere. And we have seen pretty significant increases in uh, in rental, in rents, mm-hmm. rental rates as well. And part of that is probably driven by this lack of opportunity um, because of such a t- tight market on the ownership side. So, so people not buying, moving or remaining in the rental market, I guess, as opposed to... Or landing in the rental market when they may want to buy and they just mm-hmm. don't have enough options. And the one thing about the rental market is it's relatively fluid, right? Generally speaking, and the degree that somebody moves out, whether they move up a, a price scale in the rental market or into ownership, that frees up a unit that then cascades its way down. Right, And uh, that has also become sort of blocked up with a sub 1% vacancy rate on the rental side of things. And that's just pushing the rental rates up. Just thinking, and I'd love to talk about rents f- further, but to to stay on the um, you know the real estate side of things, interest rates obviously are a defining feature. Inventory is a defining feature. Are there other? What are the other factors influencing the market right now? You know, I this is back to this or idea. Are there? <laughs> yeah, you know, I I mean, there's always there's always a lot there's a lot of a lot of factors always, but I think really what's driving things right now is it's it's this linear sequential inflation interest rates and prices equation or relationship and with inventory then influencing things at the margin so i think i mean if we if interest rates went back to um like if you could do a five-year fixed mortgage rate at two and a half percent right now the market would just be super active yeah right so I'm going to go back to Bill Clinton's 1992 run for the presidency. And at that point, <laughs> he, he said, it's about the economy, stupid. Yeah, and yeah. while I agree, which is what you're talking about, interest rates and uh, things of that nature, I'm going to flip it around and say it's about the people, stupid. The other factor that we need to recognize is that we just at the federal level upped our immigration targets within the next two years to 500,000 people coming into this country. So there is another factor as well. And this is where the conversation gets more broad from ownership real estate into real estate writ large, the rental side of Mm -hmm. things. And we are needing to accommodate more people, not just in the lower mainland, but across the country. That's also our kids who are eventually going to move out of the house uh, and new migrants and immigrants as well. So that would be the other factor. It's not just about the economy. It's about the people. Can we can we maybe talk a little bit about immigration? And it, you put out some numbers, but generally speaking, that's that's the one thing that everybody seems to be talking about. Uh, even though we're in kind of a softer territory right now in the market, can we talk about some of the trends in immigration? Sure. Starting back in 2017, the federal government started to up their immigration target historically from a 250,000 person a year up to. 310, 340. Uh, We came through um, February of 2022 and they upped their targets again to uh, hit 450. And then in November came back and said, we're going to go farther and we're going to go bigger and we're going to go by 2024, 500,000 people. So very significant. It's double what our historical norm is at a at a policy rate of about uh, two hundred and fifty thousand a year. Uh, that also puts us at the top of all G twenty countries in terms of our immigration rate. It's about a one point four percent immigration rate. Uh, so very significant. Objectives are to address our aging population. We all know that. Um, That's what the objective is. It is a targeted program bringing in people who are younger than what the demography in Canada already is. 
And so it will have implications on the labor force in terms of adding people to that. But also that stage of the life cycle, your most typical immigrant coming in in their early to mid 30s. It's also family and household formation stage of the life cycle. So there's a pretty significant housing implication to the immigration targets. And in the unintended consequence of the federal government trying to address our demographic challenge is the housing implication of that. And so I think, uh, you know, right in you guys as well are super interested in, okay, what is the, what's going to happen in the spring market here? I sort of look in like I'm a little bit of a longer picture guy. And, uh, you know, within the next uh, five to seven years, I think housing markets through Canada are going to be significantly challenged just in terms right. of availability of homes to accommodate. Again, it's not just immigrants and migrants, it's our kids who are going to eventually move out of the house as well. And uh, so just dealing with those issues in uh, the next five to seven years, I think are going to be uh, incredibly challenging. One of the things that we actually, uh, we talked about this before we went on, on air here about having Wendy Waters on the program recently. And, and one of her comments was that the median income of new permanent immigrants has jumped significantly in the past, call it 10 years. And that it's prime renter age. Do we see this as likely as a, a huge demand in the rental market, I would anticipate? Yeah, and we've looked at the stats and provided a lot of stats to Wendy on this front as well. And yes, certainly in the short term, in terms of the immigrant population, also the migrant population, so just interprovincial migrants, people tend to land initially in the rental market. So it's about 80% in terms of people filling their census forms out, whether they be immigrants or interprovincial migrants saying, yeah, well, I'm in the rental market. But we do find that there is a transition eventually into the ownership side of things. Once people get established and uh, establish their local communities, they do tend to transition into uh, onto the rental side of things. But uh, in the short term, definitely uh, big rental implications. And, and have you looked at how many, because uh, you hear a lot of numbers thrown around, but do we have a sense of how many of the new permanent immigrant population will settle in the lower mainland? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So I'll just I'll backtrack for a second because we have these permanent resident targets of, as Andy said, you know, 500,000 by 2025. They're not all net new to Canada. And historically, it was 70% were new and 30% were already here. What's interesting, last couple of years, that ratio has flipped. So there are a lot more PR approvals being made to people who are applying from within Canada already. And so that PR story as it relates to growth is a little bit different, but it's but it's, it's then complemented by the fact that we have been issuing, we just issued 1.2 million permits. Record number. A record number across Canada last year, which I think the the previous high was somewhere around eight or 900,000. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even close. And most of those people are net new and many of them will become permanent residents. And so then now to answer your question a little more directly, we look at these big numbers for Canada and all these, the unprecedented growth that we're expected to see through migration across the country, but it's our largest regional economies and markets, metropolitan areas that are going to be disproportionately impacted in a direct sense. Because, you know, in Metro Vancouver, we, the international inflow is our share of Canada is about double our share of the population, right? And so that's also true for places like uh, Toronto. We also see it in a Calgary and Edmonton to a little bit of a lesser degree. 
But then that has indirect impacts for other regional markets. Like if we look at Vancouver Island and we look at the interior here in BC, that has implications for domestic movers and then those housing markets vis-a-vis the needs of people who are leaving the lower mainland or whatever for more affordability or more availability. So there's there's this cascading effect. And I think it's just the impact of this, of the need for people and need to support our labor force. Um, and the the impact on the housing market is just amplified in places like Metro Vancouver. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Can we talk about how you see this playing out? Because like in my mind, we've had a lot of conversations with Folks in in the development community, they're like, yeah, we're hitting pause. You know, we're you know, let's see how this plays out. I, I was curious to hear your guys' conversations with you guys. Are talking to tons of people in that community all the time. So, as you said, rental stock doesn't pencil out. Uh, a lot of people are are not keen to bring pre construction projects to the market. We see this huge inflow, like even on rents. Rents right now, say downtown or what, like it's like. One meds for 2,600. 26, 27. Like, how does this? So, in two, three years, if we're not actually providing supply and wages are not going up that fast, like, how does this actually play out? Because, like, how much, where does, how much can I charge for my basement in two years? Because right now, no, but I mean, in, in all, it, realistically, it's like if you're a regular person, I'm like, how do you afford to live in my basement right now, let alone, you know, above ground? It seems like, like, where does this, where's the breaking point? And what does that look like? Is there a breaking point? Does the, does, do we just escalate in perpetuity or do people start leaving on in mass or what, what, what happens here? 
Well, that could certainly happen. Not, I wouldn't say on mass, but it, it, people will be less likely to choose the lower mainland as a location to migrate to. Or my kids will say, "I'm getting out of Dodge because it's too expensive." Right. And but that for that has implications for the secondary markets throughout the province as well. Uh, and we've already seen that people saying, "You know, like Victoria's." Pretty cool over there. Like, well, how about Kelowna? Calgary. Um, and then <laughs> yeah, there's the yeah. further afield going to Calgary, but then, you know, you got to shovel snow in Calgary. and <laughs> But, you know, and this is, I'll go back to what I said earlier. The next five to seven years, I think, given these longer term trajectories of population growth and change, it's going to be a very challenging time for the housing markets. And back to your question when we started out, What's the market or how's the market? And it really depends on who you are, right? So for somebody like a developer, yes, they're going to hit pause right now. But in the longer term, like it looks like a relatively good market in terms of being able to either sell product or or rent, rent stuff out that you're building. Uh, but if you're somebody trying to get into the market, meh, it's not so great. It's going to be super challenging right. going forward. And on the supply side, last year we've, on a net side, finished about 22,000 homes within the lower mainland. So that's net new CMHC data net of demolitions. And uh, that was down a little bit from about 25,000, which was the peak the year before. But if I look forward in terms of our models at the office, we're needing to add on a net side within the next three years, about 35,000 annually. So we're almost 10,000 units, more than 10,000 units a year short. But we haven't, we've never done that. No, we haven't. We have not. And we also have not accommodated the amount of population growth that we're expecting mm-hmm. historically either. So this is where it becomes sort of uh, super interesting. And I've had lots of conversations with David E.B. in his current role, but then also in his previous role as, uh, as Minister of Housing. And this is in large part some of the drivers behind policy changes that are happening at the provincial level in terms of housing targets for municipalities and uh, just trying to facilitate the addition of of housing because he looks at the data as well and goes like this is could be a scary situation Mm -hmm. this goes back to we've talked in the past andy about housing and specifically rental housing being an economic facilitator yes right so at some point your housing stock can be such that it isn't conducive to growing the local economy. And remember, remember in the States, remember this, the whole, the concept of the brain drain. I don't feel like we talk about that anymore. Right. Um, This idea that people were like high skilled individuals and doctors were leaving Canada for the States. Right. Right. There was a concern that we're just losing good people. And I think on a regional level, you know, we, we could get to that point where you have people going, especially in this world of working remotely. It's like, people are going to go to the lowest cost jurisdiction to set up shop, um, even if they're employers on the other side of the country. Now, not everyone can do that, but there's a segment of the population that will, and they probably are. Like the last quarter of demographic data at the provincial level showed BC for the first time in like, for the first time since 2015 or something, like we lost on a net basis, BC did people to Alberta. And Alberta overall gained 19,000 people at the end, in the last quarter of last year, on a net basis from all places in Canada, and I know they've got this campaign of uh, come Ray, home, uh, come yeah, home to come Alberta, home, and they're trying to steal our people <laughs> yeah, and yeah, all. Yeah. And I don't know if it's working or not, but it, well, the data shows that it's working because they've happening. got a backflow. Yes, <laughs> and that was the largest net inflow on a quarterly basis for them in f- over forty years. So there is like a bit of a reckoning, there. and that's the great thing about 
markets and economics is that there's like there are these balancing mechanisms right. in a sense, right? So um, not that it's comfortable, I, and this is not a desired state because you're going to have people making very uncomfortable and suboptimal decisions, right? People who grew up in a particular neighborhood who can't live there. Even Andy's kids, he won't even let them rent their basement, his, his, his own basement. <laughs> well, it's it's worth three grand a month now. They're off to Alberta. <laughs> and he buys them a snow shovel for those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it's it's an uncertain future, but I mean, it all can't work in the way that it has been. There's, got, there's going to be some, something's got to give in a mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Do you, do you see, you know, this makes me think of, you know, we're at, eight months or 10 months of historic lows in terms of sales volume. Is this moment an opportunity for buyers or are you thinking six months from now, uh, six, six months before now, uh, when, when is, is now a good time to buy? It, it totally depends on what kind of a buyer you are. I think, you know, I've said to a few people, like if you are, if you can reasonably afford carrying a variable rate mortgage right now, you can, you know, and you're willing to take that on for a few years, you probably can ride that down and be in a better position even one year out from now mm-hmm. than you are now. But not everyone's going to be comfortable with that because there's quite a premium on on the variable rates right now. I think if you're a cash buyer, uh, there's obviously an opportunity to put opportunity costs to putting your money in a, one particular investment. But right now, what you're benefiting from as an investor is prices that I mean, detached home benchmark prices are down close to twenty percent since their peak in the spring. Condo prices are down actually not that much seven percent. Last two months, they've actually they've come back up, mm-hmm. which is a whole other thing we can talk about. But but basically what you're doing is you're buying homes at a discount without confronting the pain of the higher financing costs, right? So I, I you know, I do think that there are opportunities there. And then if you're an investor, listen, the secondary rental market is super important in providing the right kind of housing to allow our, our region to grow. It's a relatively small proportion of the overall rental stock. But over the past decade, the secondary market, so the individually owned condos and those sorts of things, has accounted for like 80% of the net growth in overall uh, rental, rental availability, mm-hmm. right? So it's important. I know some people sort of poo-poo the investor, like, oh, you're just out to make a profit. But I mean, it's actually a very important source of rental supply. And so, yeah, you know, there are some opportunities, but I think that, you know, that first-time home buyer, if you don't have a grandparent or parents with equity they can tap or a bunch of savings they're willing to hand over before they before they um, move on to a different world, then you're, you're stuck. You're just pinched. Like your maximum purchase price has gone down. And that's so even if there's an opportunity right now, it's, it's unattainable for a lot of people. There's a total disconnect between what buyers can actually legitimately (laughs) afford, especially with banks doing more due diligence and what sellers are willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And again, unless, unless there's a reason for sellers to be more flexible with their prices, i.e., it's really expensive to be in this home. Whether it's an investor on a variable rate mortgage who's like, actually, I can't carry this anymore. Mm-hmm. Or it is just a homeowner who's like, holy smokes, I just renewed. And I just added like a thousand or two thousand bucks to my monthly payment. I can't do it. We're going to see some of that. And that might that might help. But right now, it's it's ships passing in the night kind of thing. <laughs> what about if your grandma has a reverse mortgage? Can we talk about the generational <laughs> wealth transfer? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well... <laughs> 
we can. And you influenced that reverse mortgage. I just <laughs> the reverse exactly. mortgages are super interesting because I think while we see a lot of uh, ads for them, Benjamin Tall and the guy, they looked at their mortgage portfolio and they said that, so it was 30% of, in their mortgage portfolio, 30% of first-time buyers were getting help from mom and dad. On average, it was to the tune of 90 grand uh, across the country. They also found that 10% of move-up buyers, I think the number's correct, uh, were getting help from the bank of mom and dad as well. In the lower mainland here, I think his number was $320,000 on average. So not a large, like not tons of people, but you know the ones that were getting transfers were, were significant. Wow. But what they also found was and again, I'll have to double back and check the numbers, but I think it was under 3% of those funds that were being transferred were being done out of debt. It was all being done out of savings. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. So it's so, not the reverse mortgage. It's not the reverse mortgage that is driving that transfer of equity. And and our numbers are right. Like drum roll, you want to give the most recent number for what our estimates are for mortgage-free? In Metro Vancouver, well, first of all, this stat still astounds me, but two out of every five homeowners is mortgage-free. Right? Right. A lot of that is demographically influenced because you have a big chunk of owners who are baby boomers, so like 55 to 75 or older, um, who paid down their mortgage you know, many years ago. But the value, the, the value of mortgage-free equity in this region is $400 billion. And... In the 75 plus population, it's a hundred billion. Billion. This is B billion. <laughs> and so we actually looked at it over the over the past 10 years using census data. We looked at that 75 plus group who was mortgage-free back then, and then in and how many households there were in that age group in, in more recently. And over that period, that 10-year period, they were that group was releasing. So I'll, I'll clarify in a sec. That group was releasing $400 million of equity into the market every month, right? So that's like 12% of the Metro Vancouver's resale volume monthly. That's not an insignificant amount. So that's money that it could be through a reverse mortgage. We don't know the answer to this, but it, it's a combination of reverse mortgages of people dying, right? People moving away. So that money doesn't necessarily all end up in Metro Vancouver. It could be going in all sorts of places. And the, and then, and actually it would have an outsized impact on markets like uh, Victoria and a Kelowna to the extent that that money is being used then to purchase there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, that is a big, that is a source of, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's part of the, that demand equation going forward. We know that number is going to go, is going to go up over time as well, because because of the demography. Exactly. So we look at the census, and if I go back 10 years in the census, there was about 100,000 seniors, 65 plus, that would have aged into the stage of the life cycle where they had potential to transfer. If I look at the 2021 census, it's almost 140,000 people in terms of aggregate uh, who are going to move through that stage of the life cycle that they have that opportunity to transfer. So that post-World War II boom bulge, they're getting into the stage of the life cycle and it's just going to grow in magnitude and to the degree that uh, the values continue to increase and get pushed up. It's a double impact. It's you've got the demographic and then the the dollar value financial side of it as well. And I know you're focused on, on obviously looking in the market in the lower mainland and BC, but 
And obviously BC can fit in a small corner of Ontario, but are, do we see similarities in Ontario? Do you ever, have you ever considered like Toronto and... Toronto is the same. Same. It's the same, very similar demography in terms of uh, the Toronto market, but given the scale of it, if we think our 400 billion is big, I... Do I can't remember. remember I can't remember what it is, it but at one point we did it. We ran it. And like the number is just—it's mind blowing, just because of the scale of the Toronto market. It's so right. large in absolute number. Yeah, it's probably close to a trillion. Tr- if you just look yeah. at the size of the yeah. the size of. The we market. often talk about that generational wealth wealth transfer is almost being unique to Vancouver, but it's not. Well, the the unique part is that our value, our home values, are, are high. high. So on like a per capita basis, yeah. we we punch above our weight. Right. Of course. And and we've also had very significant increase in the values, right? And so that's the the two combining factors, the, the demography, but then also the the price. Uh, price has been way up. And and is this, I mean, this is an obvious point, but maybe I'll frame it as a question. Is this, you know, you hear about the blood in the streets scenario um, in the real estate market, but this is the missing component to that kind of either wishful thinking or analytical framework. You know, we've talked before we went live about having an economist on from uh, outside of BC where using that, you know, 30% of your income uh, is an affordable home. And based on that metric, you know, we should be dropping 60% declines. But that's the missing kind of component in in that analysis set of the blood in the streets type scenario. I think, yeah, I think I think it's part of it. I mean, it's undermined a little bit if if values across the board are going down because then that pool of equity to be deployed into the market is smaller. Right. Fortunately, maybe it's similar. But I think the whole blood in the street scenario, as you say, who knows? I know in this market we've been talking. There've been there's been documented talks of a crash since like what 1911. 1911. And then <laughs> and prices are too high in 1911. <laughs> and I remember being on like speaking tours like. 15 years ago talking about like the title of my presentation was, is there a bubble in Vancouver kind of thing? And right. there were, you know, there were a lot of voices, very loud voices sort of saying, this isn't real. It's all going to come crashing down. I guess if you say that long enough, maybe, you know, you, you have a <laughs> well, good I guess chance we've of getting seen 20% right. <laughs> near, you know, like well, in the single family market, we've seen these right. serious yeah. declines, but they're not anywhere near it actually doesn't improve affordability at all right. because it's 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 the, the the declines in house prices for the increase in interest rates has not been enough it's, it's actually not made more right more right it's even harder to carry it yeah but I, I look at a market and i say going back to andy and the the demographics yep. is what you know where is it likely that I'm, the bottom might fall out of a market sort of long term it's where there isn't job growth and population growth so show me a market where you have net declines in populations. Nobody wants to live there. Mm-hmm. Nobody's moving there. Or you have net outflows. That's a market where, and maybe it's because the economy is not dynamic enough, whatever. Well, you know, that's a market that's at risk of, of long-term decline. I think from a stability perspective, if you have continued job growth and income growth and population growth, you're going to see oscillations around a long-term trend. And that's what we're experiencing right now. Um, but it, it, it's just hard for me to get my head around prices in Vancouver falling to that of Regina or Moncton, you know? Sure. Equity is one, but I'm back to my wheelhouse. It's, it's people. It's mm-hmm. about the people. And we are in the lower mainland going to move into a situation in the coming decade, like we moved through in the late eighties and early nineties, where, uh, the post-World War II boom in that 80, nineties period moved out of the familial home and created homes of their own. They became of age. And uh, we're going to move into that same situation in the coming decades. It's not going to be the 
post-World War II boom, 55 to 64 population that'll predominate, it's going to be the 25 to 34-year-old age group within the next decade in the prime household formation stages of the life cycle. Okay. And that's driven in part by immigration and migration to the lower mainland. But then back to our kids getting out of the house as well. So, and, and are you, you're tracking that, the numbers on, on kind of the demographic shift? hundred percent. So we have, uh, we start up at the national level and uh, we feed into a national population model, um, that we recognize the federal immigration targets. And this is an interesting point. Like we wrote a report about 15 years ago called the perfect storm, which looked at issues of aging population in Canada, implications on the labor force. And at that point we had said, you know, like we have to increase immigration targets and, from that point or even before that, we used to run a higher immigration number for our national models than StatsCan or BC Stats did. And it just so happened in 2017, they sort of dusted our report off and said, yeah, you, you guys were right and we should start increasing immigration targets. And uh, so we start up at that national level and then feed down through all of the provinces and then down into major metro regions in uh, in Canada as well. So yes, we track it on geography basis uh, on an age and sex specific basis and then translate that uh, into what potential housing demand is given not just the scale of population growth but the composition of those additions as well it's actually really interesting i don't have the numbers here but just if we turn off migration in our models so we we take our population today and we just age people and some people have kids and some people die we continue to generate increasing demand, net new demand for housing for something like 15 years, which is a fascinating concept because we always attribute the need for no, new housing to, well, because we're adding people. And sure. yes, that's obviously true. But to, to Andy's point, you know, you have kids that grow up and they go from not being the head of a household to being the head of a household. They need their own while a big proportion of the older population is still in their home. We're living our life expectancies are increasing. Disability-free life expectancy is is at an all-time high. So people are staying in their homes. So there's the the stock of homes is there, but it's occupied mm-hmm. as this next generation is aging into this housing formation stage. There's another super fascinating one there too on the life expectancy side. Yes, it, life expectancy is increasing, but the gap between male and female life expectancy is narrowing. Which so, makes sense, yeah. it, which makes sense. Like either we're getting smarter, or my wife is out doing some of the fun stuff that we typically do. <laughs> yeah. um, but what, but what that means? She it, works in a mine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At least anecdotally, the degree to which that elderly couple can stay together, what happens? They stay in their home, right? Right. It's from what we see, what we track through the data. It's like at, at a point of one of the spouses passing away. That's that big change in lifestyle and potentially the sale of the house. And and also, I was going to ask you about the impact of COVID on that because at least anecdotally, I feel like speaking of our old man, he was like, "You're taking me out in a pine box. Like I'm mm. I'm not going into you know because yep. we're looking at our grandma in lockdown. You know, it's like." That's not as, I mean, it's never never an appealing situation, but it's definitely less appealing after thinking about how, oh, yeah. that, how COVID played out. Yeah. Well, this was something that uh, David Foote, he was an economist at the University of Toronto, wrote the book called Boom, Bust, and Echo, like back in the 1990s. And he said like around 20, 2000, 2010, we'd see a big rout in the residential real estate market in Canada because of the boomers aging and they're all going to get into retirement homes and all this kind of stuff. And he didn't actually look at the data in terms of that propensity to move in that older stage. Every year you get older after the age of 35, your likelihood to move declines. So 
the numbers are like 75 to 80% of that older population on their census form indicated that they were still in the same house in 2021 that they were in 2016. Mm. So there is this big likelihood to stay, to your point, and I think COVID certainly pushed it in that direction in terms of uh, wanting to stay at home if you can. I'm not going to the senior's home. Right. But also you look at the healthcare system, and this is also the direction, generally speaking, that a lot of the healthcare systems are trying They're to pushing, move within. Right. Stay community-based because they don't have the ability to service that older population within the healthcare system. So the degree to which they could do it at home, like that works on the demography side and on the healthcare side of things as well. Uh, we we promised you uh, specifically, Andrew, that we would be finished within an hour. We're running at 50 <laughs> minutes here. So I, I just want to move on to uh, a question that hopefully both of, uh, well, Matt and I have thought about a little bit, but what will the headline for the balance of 2023 be, do you think? One headline. One headline. Wow. Um, Eight words or less. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the fate of interest rates? That, like... Ultimately, it's just that dynamic and that path. So, like, it's kind of interesting as sort of like data geeks, data files, whatever, who have always been interested in the monthly release of labor market data <laughs> and CPI data and the Bank of Canada interest rate announcements, right? Where most people couldn't care less. It's not relevant. Now, everybody's like, Did it's you like see the it, jobs data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just don't ask a follow-up question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's true. People are more aware of all of these things and they have a sense for the fact that they matter and how they matter to their world vis-a-vis, you know, interest rates and how those are moving. And I and I think, you know, we, we talked about this at the at the outset of the podcast, just that it's interest rates that are going to sort of primarily ahead of anything else in the short term. Because it's things like demography and other factors long-term that drive the market. That's the the long-term trajectory piece. But if we're talking about where are we next month versus a month after versus a month after, it's watch inflation and what decision does the Bank of Canada make? Because that will then also influence, I mean, most directly it influences the like the prime rate and variable rate mortgages and any interest rates on, on um, yeah, HELOCs, et cetera. But then it also does impact bond yields, and then fixed mortgage rates as well. So to me, that is easily the number one thing. Yeah, Ryan, and I didn't talk about this beforehand, but I would say the same thing. The headline is going to be inflation falls back into the Bank of Canada's target range. And By that, the end of the, so so <laughs> that's a positive. That's By a, summer. By yeah. summer. We're actually saying by April, May, June, we should be back in the target range. Wow. Do you, do you think we see a, a cut in Q4? Okay, well, this is right. I'll, I'll let Ryan answer, <laughs> so and then just, I'll follow be, up. Just before the the cut talk, so um, that's a fairly dramatic so drop in. Right, you want <laughs> yeah. it's it's the inertia of the math. We call it the math path for inflation. So, for what it's worth, the Bank of Canada itself has announced that, that or made the statement in its past two rate announcements that it expects the rate of inflation to fall to three percent by summer. So that's our central bank who is pulling the lever on rates. Um, what we looked at was the month-to-month inflationary pressures from the beginning of 20, like the first half of last year and the second half of last year. Totally different economic contexts. And I won't necessarily get into all the details now, but we expect that 
it is that context from the second half of 2022 that is more relevant and likely to play out in 2023, where there's less, it doesn't, prices aren't coming down. We're not talking about things becoming cheaper. We're talking about the rate at which they right. increase. Becoming that less. Yes. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of those price, not everywhere, but for a whole bunch of reasons, we're seeing price pressures abate. And if they evolve on a month-to-month basis the way they kind of did in the second half of last year, it's the, the math of inflation that is going to result in it plummeting. It's already come down. We predicted it last th- each of the last three months. We went from 8.1% in the summer at 5.9% now. And the inertia of it wants will push the rate to 2% by May. I'm not saying that is where it will be. If it isn't there, it's because there have been some unexpected Other or factors. dramatic yes, yeah. factors influencing inflation. And there's, anything can happen, right? I mean, we've got the SVB situation yeah. in the States. Yep. Um, and War in other Ukraine. Banks. There could be a whole bunch of stuff. COVID 2023. I don't know anything. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. we don't know. I've just talked to two people with COVID as a total aside. But anyway, <laughs> don't worry, they're not in this room. <laughs> <laughs> it's Matt and Adam. Where do we all have it? It's the surprise. <laughs> uh, so, so that's where the path for the math will go. Uh, but as Rai said, it, all kinds of stuff could happen that could push that trajectory off. E- even China and reorientation, reflation of their economy as mm-hmm. they came out of January, only January 7th in terms of their zero COVID policy. Um, but then the next question is, okay, well, what is the Bank of Canada going to do? Mm-hmm. And Ryan and crew have a pretty... Uh, well, I just say, I'll just say this, that the some people think that there's no cost to having high interest rates. And they say, listen, we just got to crush inflation. So if you're not sure, central bank, keep increasing rates. The problem is there is a very real cost to having high interest rates. It's starting to play out now, an impact on real people and households and businesses where it becomes living becomes unaffordable and you have to make drastic changes to your life that you wouldn't make otherwise, like sell your home or move away or whatever. We know that the current central bank target rate is above what they call neutral. So in a normal, go back to 2019, right. um, the rate was so low then, but we're talking about in more normal conditions, probably two and a half to 3% is where they want to be. We're at four and a half percent now. And we haven't seen the full impacts of the rate increases to date play out. That was, they're still to come for the next year. So there's a, there's a risk in overshooting that it deteriorates labor market conditions that people lose their jobs, lose their homes. So, I, I think the bank is going to be looking for reasons to bring that rate back into a neutral place. And if the inflation data are demonstrating stability in prices within that target range for a period of time, I think you can expect a rate cut. So I, I think this could be a six-hour podcast based on how much we <laughs> want to talk say. about more yeah. stuff, but we are we are out of time. Uh, how can how can people find out more about what, what you guys are up to at, uh, at Rennie? So, I mean, we have a website. Uh, you can go to rennie.com slash intelligence, and there you can access information about uh, what we do um, and all of our latest reports, whether it's uh, monthly reports on the resale market, quarterly reports on uh, pre-sale, our, our annual outlook report, or the Rennie Landscape, uh, which is our sort of signature report that we publish twice a year that looks at all the factors that kind of impact our market. And I've managed to carve out a little bit of real estate on the website for advisory services as well. So if anybody's interested in uh, engaging advisory services or wants any more uh, info about that, they can uh, jump over to the advisory services page on on rennie.com as well. And I will say we subscribe. Um, yeah. You guys put out fantastic 
Fantastic. Oh, you're good men. Waiting for the Thank next you. art party invite. Uh, in a while. <laughs> it has. <laughs> I haven't been invited either for what it's been worth. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for coming down and, and your time. And uh, uh, we'll let you guys get back to what, you're, uh, what you do. Thank you, gents. Appreciate it. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Andrew Ramlow, VP of Advisory Services over at Rennie, and Ryan Berlin, Director of Intelligence, Senior Economist over at Rennie. Man, they have not been on the show since 2019. I feel like this one, we kind of, they there, there was a hard stop, but let's put it this way. I feel like we got into about a quarter of what I was hoping to talk about. So hopefully those guys will be back soon. Yeah, I really, um, yeah, and that's exactly it. Like we kind of joked after after we turned off the mics about how we literally scratched the surface of all the things that I think all four of us wanted to talk about. So I think there needs to be a, um, uh, a bit of a hot shots part two on this one and, uh, potentially a part trois as well. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we can get them back. Yeah. I think this is like, if they, if they had the time, uh, you know, week in, week out, I just want to talk to those guys. That's for sure. So it's great having them on. What else do we have before we go? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. It's the new site. It is way, way more user-friendly. Tons of positive feedback there. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for things like the live wire. This is our weekly mailer where you get stats before anyone else, deal of the market, VIP pre-sale access. Um, and there's some stellar deals out there right now in that space. There's basically no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. And of course, Adam, we always have tried and true private client services. Yeah, Matt, because if you're not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Go and sign up for a PCS account. And while you're there, check out the sold plan, which is something that we worked on for a very long time, which stands for start on launch date. It's a uh, it's a document for people considering listing their property this spring. You start on the day that you plan to list, and then it gives you instructions, basically, how to work your way backwards through what needs to get done before the listing date. Fantastic document. Um, that is over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And one more thing, Adam, of course, we are producing basically daily content over at, on Instagram now at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And yeah, I think these we're doing videos, we're doing slideshows, we're getting good, good feedback, good feedback over there. We're giving away t-shirts. There's no, no reason why you shouldn't click follow there. It's free. It's fun. The community and comments are great. Uh, but maybe we'll leave it there. If you want to talk about that or anything else, give me a shout at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Well, have a great week, guys, and we'll be back next week with another fantastic episode. And uh, I got to tell you, hopefully I'm... Uh, I'm still here. I, I, you're, even just talking to you is making me nervous right now. So yeah, uh, get some sleep. We'll hopefully see you next week, but don't come in too quick. Okay, take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.